there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of the Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. Hey everybody, I just wanted to take a minute before your podcast starts to talk about something very important to me. Black Lives Matter. I, Sarah Strumming, am committed to anti-racism and the companies that I oversee, the Cognitive Canine and Cogdog Radio, are also committed to anti-racism. I recognize my privilege here and I recognize that I have a platform where I can use my voice and I intend to do so in such a way that combats systemic racism because it absolutely affects the field of dog training and it's time that everybody with a platform uses it for good. I'm going to link a list of resources for ways that you can support Black, Indigenous, and people of color and also just some educational resources that I've found helpful in my anti-racism journey. And I hope that we can all stand together to dismantle racism in dog training and therefore in the world. Cheers. Hey guys, this week I have fellow FDSA instructor Jessica Heckman. Jessica is a double doctor. She's a veterinarian and a PhD. She currently works as a veterinary researcher at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. Her PhD is in animal sciences, specifically genetics, genomics, and bioinformatics, and hopefully I said those things right. As if that wasn't enough, she also has a master's degree that's centered on the behavior and cortisol responses of healthy dogs being hospitalized overnight. So today, Jessica is focused on the genetics of behavior in both pet and working dogs, and she's passionate about using genetics to discover how brain function differs between confident and anxious dogs. So you know that I'm really excited about the work that she's doing. Jessica, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So specifically, I invited you here. I mean, we have a lot of things we could talk about, but I invited you here to talk about the Functional Dog Collaborative. So can you tell us what that is and why it exists? Yeah, so it's uh, it's a, a new initiative. So all the stuff you were talking about is the stuff that I actually get paid to do for my day job, right? Um, this is what I put together as my uh, pandemic passion project, where we're all stuck at home and we're all like, oh, I got to do something with my my extra free time. Um, And it was something I'd been thinking about, though, for a lot of years, and I basically just stopped being able to prevent myself from doing it. Um, So it had bothered me for a really long time, the way we breed purebred dogs, that there are incentive structures out there to push us to really prioritize or or to to have higher in our priority list things that are not all that important for dogs being good pets or good at their their other jobs um things like how much white the dog has or what the exact shape of the head is stuff like that and i started thinking about how you know what are all the issues out there with how we breed purebred dogs and how can i provide something that changes the incentive structure so that if people really want to go breed for these other things and not worry about how the dog does in the show ring, they can do it. I also started getting involved, uh, or just helping out on the side, some outcross projects and discovering how really hard it can be for them if they're trying to inject some genetic diversity into some pretty inbred breeds, how hard it can be for them to get breeding stock. Um, There's people out there who have some lovely dogs, but are not willing to sell puppies to someone who's going to breed it to anything other than a purebred of the same breed. Um, And I started thinking, well, I need to start bringing all these people together, people who want to breed dogs to be pets first, people who want to breed sport mixes, people who want to do outcross projects. They should all have a place to come together and talk together and learn and figure out new ways of thinking about breeding dogs. So I'm calling it the Functional Dog Collaborative. Um, Right now, it's a website and a Facebook group and a podcast. Uh, So the podcast is sort of the most where you'll get your most value, right? That's where there's actual content. 
Um, although on the website, we did put together a curriculum, which is a list of all the things that we think that readers should know to be a competent reader. Um, and we're working on, I have some fantastic volunteers are helping work on filling out that list with pointers to places you can go to actually learn those things. Um, and then the podcast is interviews with people who breed dogs or scientists, uh, or people who train working dogs, um, stuff like that. So yeah, that's where it stands right now. It's really exciting. You're basically singing my song. <laughs> I've been really <laughs> interested. I agree with everything you just said. I've been observing it as well. Um, one of my favorite breeds is the Doberman, for instance. Oh, and yeah. you, you notice that I don't have any. Right. And <laughs> the reason I don't have any is the kind of dire health situation that I feel the breed is in from being over here on the outside and not being a breeder and not being inside of it. Can you explain, because I'm familiar with what an outcross project is, but some of my listeners may not be. So can you talk about what that is a little bit? Yeah. So the Doberman is actually a really great example. Um, it's a breed that for, what, for whatever reason, um, based on how people bred them, ended up with very, very little genetic diversity. And there's a lot of different ways of measuring genetic diversity. Um, but one way that we do it is what we call coefficient of inbreeding. So that goes from zero to 100. Zero meaning that your parents were not related to each other in any way. And I guess 100 would be what you would get if you managed to breed two clones to each other. You know, you never see that in real life. So if you had 25%, that would be if you had two unrelated parents uh, who had a bunch of kids and a brother and sister from that litter. <laughs> we're sort of talking about humans. Let's say we're talking about dogs. And so the brother and sister from that litter mated, um, their offspring would be 25% inbred. So that's what you get from a, a brother-sister cross. So Dobermans, by that particular measure, are around 43% inbred. So that's worse than a brother-sister cross. So what's worse than a brother-sister cross is basically that it's been going on for a while, right? With like, um, you know, popular sires where there's one dog who does super, super well, um, in the show ring and in sports or, or whatnot, and everybody wants to breed to him. And so he has lots of babies and then everybody is related to him, you know, and just sort of breeding only the very best to the very best um, and not keeping as much diversity in the lines as you otherwise would have. And probably in large part due to that, you see some really horrific health problems in the breed. So the, the really big one for Dobermans is DCM, which is dilated cardiomyopathy, uh, which is a heart disease, strikes pretty young, um, particularly in this breed. So it can be around four or five years of age. And there's sort of two ways it presents. Um, one way is that the dog goes into heart failure and you have them for about a year and it's not a fun year. Uh, and then the dog dies at the end of that time. And the other way is that the dog is exercising. Um, doing something like, you know, you might imagine being in the middle of an IPO trial or something like that, and the dog keels over dead. Um, and mm -hmm. I have talked to multiple Doberman owners who have told the story of either their own dog in the ring, keeling over dead, or I was actually just uh, a couple days ago, actually, anyone who goes and listens to my podcast will hear this story, because I was interviewing Dr. Sophie Liu about the Doberman Diversity Project. So at the time that you and I are recording this, Sarah, that's not out yet, but it will be in a few weeks. And she was telling this horrible story about she and her friend, you know, where I don't remember if they were in a trial or they were just working their dogs. I think it was a, a class and the dog keeled over and they sort of were like, oh, is he resting? What's going on? Why isn't he getting up? And it gradually dawned on them that the dog was dead. So that's awful. Um, and then there's, you know, it's just for the icing on the cake, there's a lot of cancers in that, in that breed as well. So it's, I, I sympathize with you. I am in the same straits with golden retrievers. I love golden retrievers. I'm not going to get another yes. one. Yeah. And and when I'm saying that there's a lot of heart disease in Dobermans, it's really it's literally like 50-50 that they're going to get it or, or not, that particular disease. And the median age that they live to is something like six or seven years. I mean, it's awful. Like they do, they do not live very long. Um, and golden's the same thing. It's like a 60 or 70% chance that they're going to get cancer. And again, their lifespan is, is much shorter than it should be for a dog. So it's not okay. It's not okay. And so 
I'm really excited about oh, your sorry. interview. I know. You we'll were asking to what Epcot project, and I was explaining why. <laughs> You're on it. Okay, go ahead. Tell us what I'm on it. I'm on it. I remembered what you were actually asking me now. Um, <laughs> I was distracted by my crazy border collie. You were passion talking. It's and I was, I was, but also the crazy border collie came in, and he made a face like he was about to bark, and so half my brain was <laughs> <laughs> like, is he going to bark? Um, I don't know anything Epcot about project. that. <laughs> no, I know you know nothing about that. Um, outcross projects. So, so what do you do? So what do you do? So you have these Dobermans that are like 43% inbred and you want to breed out the DCM and you want to breed out the cancer. Um, and you can't like you, you, there are not lines of Dobermans that have no DCM, right? You can, the best you can do is find one with maybe a little less than your line, but as, as time goes on, it just keeps getting worse and worse. And so really the only way to do it is to go outside of the breed. Um, which is really hard for people who love purebreds to hear. Um, but you just have to bring in some genetic diversity, breed out to something that looks somewhat similar um, and has a lower chance of heart disease. And then that first litter of puppies are not going to look uh, a whole lot like Dobermans. They'll look a little bit like Dobermans. Um, and then you're going to, you know, by the next generation and the generation after that, if you keep breeding back to Dobermans, they'll start looking like Dobermans again, but you're going to have to keep doing this. Um, you can't just do it once for something complex like DCM. Um, and so there are people who are managing projects where they're trying to, you know, start crossing Dobermans with some things, breeding them back to Dobermans, but then doing it again and bringing those to each other. So that they're just bringing in more diversity into the breed and more health into the breed. Uh, but the, the problems that they're facing, I say bringing health into the breed, uh, but depending on how you define the breed, these dogs are not, recognized by the the breed clubs generally or by the AKC um I could actually tell the story of the the most famous outcross and one of the most successful outcross projects which was, was Dal the Dalmatians, Dalmatians? yeah yeah <laughs> excellent yes. I would love um, for you to talk a little bit about that that's yeah, fascinating it's, it's a, also it's another really, breed that I adore which is funny they're very spotty <laughs> they're very spotty my um my first nose reconstructor has Dalmatians she has some lovely Dalmatians um yeah, so Dalmatians, time was, um, every single Dalmatian had two copies of a busted gene, uh, meaning that they had trouble processing some chemicals in their urine and that they were liable to develop kidney stones. Um, and you could manage it with a certain diet, but uh, some people felt that you shouldn't have to manage a dog on a particular diet and that really they should be able to um, have healthy kidney function. But there were no Dalmatians in existence that had the healthy version of the gene. It had been completely what we call fixed in the breed. And so the only way to do it was to go out of the breed. Now, it was a single gene that controlled this trait, and the gene was known and could be tested for. And in fact, you didn't even have to do a genetic test. You could just test the urine and see um, if the dog was able to, to basically um, do this conversion properly or not. So, um, oh, doctor, I want to say it was Schoenenberg, and I'm going to say that wrong. It was in the 70s. Uh, PhD took a Dalmatian, bred it to, I want to say, a pointer. I should have I should have reviewed. I believe it was an English pointer, yes. Yeah. Um, and so then had these, what we call F1, so the crosses of two purebreds, these puppies, and they all had um, healthy functioning kidneys. And then was able to breed back to Dobermans, to Dobermans, to Dalmatians. And you could then easily test each puppy to see, you know, did it get at least one good copy? Because all you need is one good copy of the gene. And so what they call this line of Dalmatians was low uric acid Dalmatians or LUA Dalmatians. Because uric acid is, was the thing that they were having trouble processing. And it would be, uric acid would be high in the ones that did not have any working copies of the gene in question. So this, you know, for decades, there were these lines of LUA Dalmatians, and they were not recognized by the breed club. I, the story, as I heard it, was that AKC was sort of happy to recognize them and left it up to the breed club. And the breed club said, absolutely not. These are mutts. And at the point that it had been going on for some number of generations, these dogs, because they had been back crossed to Dalmatian so many generations, are like 99.9% um, Dalmatian. Like they basically had bred around just by selection, right? To the point where they basically had just brought this one gene in. So they basically were Dalmatians except for the one gene. 
Um, but it took a really long time for the breed club to finally accept them. I don't remember exactly. I, I know that I had already heard of this story when it happened. And I want to say it was like the early 2000s or mid 2000s that it happened. It was, it was early 2000s and the original outcross was in the seventies. So it yeah. took that long mm-hmm. and it was the Dalmatian club of America that yeah. was proposed to bring yep. them in for that long, which is really frustrating. It is. And people today, in fact, um, so I was saying that my nose work instructor has uh, Dalmatians and one of them, she got this new puppy and she's an LUA puppy and she's a lovely dog. I I really like this dog, actually. And um, one of the jobs of the students of this instructor would be to take the puppy out to pee while the instructor was was working with people. So I had the puppy out to pee and another Dalmatian person was there hanging out with me. And I was basically like, I love this puppy. She's such a sweet puppy. And this woman said to me, "Um, yeah, but, you know, their spots aren't right. She's an LUA. <laughs> and I was like, but her kidneys work. <laughs> I don't understand. So, but, you know, well, I do. People have very, very strong feelings about this kind of idea of a purebred. And actually, that idea in and of itself is something that I think needs to be challenged. And I think the folks that you're gathering at the Functional Dog Collaborative are the people that are kind of ready to challenge that idea. Yeah, that's the plan is to start bringing people together and finding people who who want to do it, but um, are just having trouble doing it. Um, And so as I think I said, some of the outcross projects are doing good work, but they're having real trouble getting breeding stock. Uh, Right? So you, you know, you have a uh, Doberman, uh, and you want to breed it to something else. And you, and then you have these F1 puppies and then you want to start breeding those back to Dobermans. And people are like, wait, your last Doberman, you bred it to, you know, whatever. And so I'm not going to sell you puppies. And so that was what I wanted to do was to bring people together to start supporting each other. It's really important. I mean, I know one of my border collies actually, had to sign a contract. It's not uncommon to sign a puppy contract, but something in the contract actually said that he would never be bred to anything other than a border collie. Yeah. Um, now I was happy to sign that because I have no interest in breeding dogs. I'm interested in the, in what you're doing, but I don't want to do it myself <laughs> as of now. You and just want to take advantage. I just want to buy the dogs. Yeah. I just want to get the nice, healthy puppies. So I was happy to sign that. So what's interesting about that is the reason that that was in the contract is because there are a lot of people that are breeding border collies to non-border collies for sport mix purposes. So, and I am not opposed. In fact, I'm all for sport mixes. Um, I know a lot of them that are fantastic. And you interviewed um, a great sport mix breeder recently on your podcast. But talk a little bit about sport mixes, pet dogs. Like what what are the actual dogs that the people you're kind of gathering are trying to produce? Yeah, I was surprised at the variety, actually. So we already talked about outcrosses. So there's definitely people from outcross projects. There are sport mix breeders, actually not as many sport mix breeders as I had expected. And I think that may be because they already sort of have a fairly supportive community. And a lot of, I was about to say a lot of people sort of understand and support what they're doing. Maybe I wouldn't say a lot of people because you already, as you just said, you'd seen that problem, but I don't, I don't think they are as sort of, I'll just say marginalized as, as some other groups. There are people as like who a are, doodle breeder. They're, they're not as marginalized as a doodle, as a doodle breeder. breeder. just say it like it is. Yeah. Um, so there are people uh, breeding known mixes. So there are a couple doodle breeders on the group and um, we actually just, I've spent, most of yesterday, uh, I, moderating a thread about doodles that I started, and it, it was it was great. Like everybody was very, um, people were mostly, mostly very polite. Some people said some thoughtless things, um, and so I was trying to be there so that the people who actually love and care about doodles were not, you know, just watching people say things like, "Well, every doodle I've ever met has been really horrible." Um, and I'd sort of be like, yeah, well, there's, you know, a lot of purebred dogs that come from bad breeders too. And it's not just about the cross, right? It's, you know, it's about that it's popular and therefore some crappy breeders are attracted to it, but it can be done really well, actually. Um, so there's that. Um, there are actually people breeding uh, mixy mix dogs just as pets. I love those projects. So there's, 
people who are just saying, I want to breed dogs to be good pets. Um, they don't even necessarily need to be sport dogs, or they would be sort of like entry-level sport dogs, um, not high-octane agility dogs. Um, but they are not particular crosses like doodles. They are just, we're going to you know, take things that are good dogs and breed them to other things that are good dogs. Um, and a lot of these are known, so it's not like they're taking things out of the shelter and breeding them, but a lot of these dogs are known many generations back. So one of these breeders I actually talked to said that she knew her dog's pedigree so far back that although she had him genetically tested with Embark, Embark came and said what they thought was in his mix. And there were some things that she knew were there, but were there at such small levels that Embark missed it. So some of these dogs are really, really well, uh, I was about to say curated. I don't know, but the lines are really well understood and well known. But then we also have had some people coming on. So there was a conversation there today where a woman was saying she has a dog of sort of unknown parentage. Um, who is just a lovely, fantastic dog. And she's like, if I could clone her, I would be rich because people would love to have a dog like this. So should I breed her? And there has been a really vibrant discussion about that. And I've been really proud of the group um, that people didn't just come in and throw down the gauntlet and say, you can't possibly breed a dog if you've never met the parents. Uh, people talked about how it's better to have met the parents and it's better to know the siblings. And are there ways you could try to, try to do that research and figure that out? Um, and there are there ways you could garner some other information. Uh, but no one came in and said, you horrible person for even considering this. So I read yeah. that thread and it was yeah. fantastic. It was so interesting. Yeah. It was so it was great. Everybody was civil. Yeah. It was great. They were. I've been I've been I've been saying that all I've been doing this weekend is reading threads. I started the doodle thread because um, someone had posted uh, about doodles and had had not a horrible response, but a fairly judgy response. And she'd sort of had withdrawn her post and gone away. And I was like, all right, we need to deal with this. So I went and posted about doodles. And I was like, let's just have it out and talk about doodles. And we all did. And then when I did that, I think a lot of people were like, oh, this really is a safe group. I didn't, I didn't realize it really is. We really can talk about this stuff. And the number of posts just exploded. And, and there were a lot of them were things that are um, traditionally fairly controversial stuff that I don't find controversial, but other people do. So I've just been spending all weekend just watching the threads. And when I see something start to go south, being like, hey, but let's think about it this way. And then it's sort of everyone's like, oh, okay, yeah. Um, so I haven't had to boot anybody out yet. Um, but I have had to do a lot of reading and keeping an eye on things and just sort of gently intervening and nudging things back to me. Yeah, it's a it's a great, great group as far as people. People are really there to talk about breeding better dogs. And they're not yes. there to talk about the dogma that exists in the purebred dog world. They're just there to talk about doing a better job. And there are purebred breeders in the group too. Yeah. It's not just um, outcrosses and mixed breeds. There are definitely purebred breeders in the group as well. And it's, it's really fantastic. Um, what do you, what are you hoping that the collaborative will achieve? Yeah. So when I say I want to provide support and education to people doing this work, um, I was thinking about what, what support is there for people currently who are breeding purebreds? So, and, and this came about because I was talking to a, a friend of mine who was trying to breed her Doberman bitch. And as you and I have already discussed, it's very hard to breed Dobermans ethically because the puppies are just going to have short lifespans. And I was trying to convince her to go with an outcross project. And uh, she said, well, you know, if I, if I do that, I'd never get another Doberman. And I was thinking, well, what is it that the breed clubs offer to people besides control of the stock? Like, so if, if you were to do this outcross, you'd be, what, what would you be walking away from? Getting another Doberman. We've already talked about that. But also for a lot of people, it's important to go to the national specialty. It's important to be on the Facebook group or the mailing list um, and have friends who you talk to. It's important to be able to show the dog in confirmation. It's important to be able to compete in AKC. It's, um, there's just there's a lot of social support. It's important to be able to go to the breed club and get breeding recommendations. What genetic tests should you do? What health tests should you do? Um, so that's, there's all that stuff that, that breed clubs provide. And then there's also stuff that I wish that breed clubs provided, but they don't along the lines of some sort of, sort of high-level guidance for what are we doing at a population level with this breed, you know, this breed is becoming inbred. Let's take some really 
uh, difficult steps to try to turn that around. Um, and the Doberman Pinscher Club of America is taking some steps, but in, in my mind, not sufficient ones. Or I should say it's clear that it's not sufficient because the, the situation is not improving. So, um, so how do I provide all of that? So my idea for where the FDC is going to go eventually is that there would be three arms. There would be um, social support. So just like where you currently might be able to go to your national specialty and see your friends and talk to other people who breed similarly to you, I would love for us eventually, um, obviously not happening this year, but eventually to have face-to-face get-togethers, um, have, we could call it a conference, we could call it a convention, we could call it camp, um, but get-togethers where people um, bring their dogs, there could be learning experiences, definitely social experiences, um, and just as when you normally would go to your national specialty, one of the things you would get back would be a judge looking at your dog and saying, how close does your dog conform to the breed standard? And that'll give you some information about whether this is a good breeding candidate or not. I would love at these face-to-face places to have sports medicine veterinarians there to get their hands on the dogs and say, this is a solid, healthy dog. Um, and you can take that into account when you're making breeding recommendations. So that's that sort of social support. Um, is the first thing. And the, the Facebook group, I think, provides a lot of that right now. Second arm is education. And so I said there's already this curriculum uh, on the website for anyone to go look at. And we are working on finding existing places to go to learn uh, all of the stuff that's very thorough. Uh, so to, to go to learn all that stuff that we've laid out there. And then we're going to identify gaps. And I'm hoping to try to figure out ways of providing classes. And and I don't really want to build my own online learning platform. So I might find a way of sponsoring classes through other organizations, existing learning platforms, Um, and maybe even to have some kind of a breeder certification someday. So that's where that's going. And then the final end, the final arm would be technology. And that's a database. It's definitely going to be necessary to have a place for people to store pedigrees, um, for people to store health information, and it would need to, people would need to be very comfortable reporting their health information. So right now, purebred breeders are kind of stigmatized if they publicly report that their, their lines have epilepsy or cancer or some of these other really hard to eradicate diseases, which makes it hard for other people to breed around those if they don't know what the situation is. So um, having social support, uh, encouraging people to publicly report that, put it into the database, um, having a way to stay connected to your puppy buyers so that you actually get that information back about the, even the dogs that you're not breeding, about how they mature, um, get some information, hopefully, also about how the dogs are turning out behavior-wise. Um, and so there's, that's my other sort of secret agenda is hooking that all into my day job where we do research on behavior and genetics. And we have a website where people go fill out a lot of questions about their dog's behavior. And so if I could <laughs> make that both be for us doing the behavioral genetics research and also as a way to stay connected with puppy buyers and for breeders to keep track of what they're producing behavior-wise. So that's that's the really grandiose plan. Um, I don't know how I'm going to fund it all, uh, but right now we have a bunch of volunteers helping out and that's been great. Um, and if anyone's listening to this and wants to help, I would love to have more help. Yeah, so at the end, we'll definitely get all of your contact info and anybody who's interested in helping, I'm sure we'll we'll reach out to you. So right now, the Functional Dog Collaborative is a website, a Facebook group, and also a podcast. So let's talk a little bit about the podcast. Yes, that has been a blast to do. Um, So as you said before, I interviewed Julie Norman Jenkins was my first interview. She breeds some really fantastic dogs. Um for sports, but they also make really good pets, uh, which was important to me to emphasize because I think a lot of people who breed sport dogs, um, either whether they are purebreds or even a lot of the sport mixes, they breed these super high octane dogs without really thinking through whether they make good pets. And it's really important to Julie to breed dogs that you can live with. So important. Um, So that was a fabulous interview. And I I really wanted to just dive right in and talk to a, a breeder first of someone who was producing dogs that were not purebred. Uh, but that was, it was well received. Um, we, I asked her privately if she'd gotten any hate mail and she said no. So that was nice. I was a little worried that people were going to do that. Um, and I didn't see anything nasty about it at all. Everybody was like, this is great. And so interesting. 
Um, and I think it was, I mean, to my knowledge, it was the first time that anyone had really gone out there publicly, publicly and talked about what it's like to crossbreed dogs. And we talked about that it's hard for her to get breeding stock. And we talked about some of the breeding decisions that she makes and how, gosh, there's a really long waiting list for her puppies. Um, and it's not true that if you crossbreed dogs, no one's going to want the offspring. Um, so that was a lot of fun. It was a great interview. It was very interesting. And, you know, you've since then, I think there's only, I think right now there's two episodes out. I think there's three. So there's three. And then I interviewed Deb Jones. You may have heard of Deb Jones. That's right. (laughs) That's right. Um, I was forgetting Deb. How could you forget Deb? So we talked to Deb for, I don't know that anyone who's listening to this would not know who Deb Jones is. Um, but she is also an FDSA instructor. Um, agility and obedience competitor um it's uh, you know near and dear to my heart because she has a phd so she and i see the world similar similar ways and i and that was i liked i liked that for sort of helping because i wanted to ask her to think through what are the traits that make a really good dog uh for sports and i i trusted that her scientific training would help her to think through that in a sort of um coherent and thoughtful way and so we had a lovely conversation about that about um you know what when you're looking to get a puppy and obviously this also pertains to when you're looking to breed a puppy, then what, what traits are, should we be thinking about and, and what traits do people actually think about? And is there a, uh, a gap between those? And then the other one that is already out there is Trish McMillan. So she is a behavior consultant, very well-known international speaker who's been in the shelter world um, for most of her career. And we talked about where good dogs come from and how there are good dogs coming out of shelters, but not enough to support the insatiable demand that people have for dogs and how we have this, um, this approach in the U.S. that we should just spay neuter everything except for something that's a purebred that's being explicitly bred for the show ring or for certain sports or certain jobs. And so there's a lot of really, really lovely dogs, uh, and Trish owns one, and, and you and I have talked about some of the others, that are, you know, mixy mixes or unknown heritage, but have some, clearly have some really great genes for being really good pets, and we're losing that. And should we be losing that? Or should we be starting to, to say, like, is it time to start thinking about breeding some of these dogs thoughtfully? And what would that look like? So... That was a lot of fun. And we also, that also sparked a really great conversation on the Facebook group. And there also has been no hate mail. No hate. Well, that's no fantastic. Cause I, that, that one definitely had some controversial pieces. Yeah. Um, that I agreed with that. I've kind of been saying for a while, for instance, that kind of the widespread push for spay neuter has not actually helped the pet dog population. Right. Um, in my opinion. And that's, definitely with Trish what I mean that's one of the points that she was talking about is that we we were successful in our efforts for the most part with widespread spay neuter with a certain kind of population of dogs yeah which has kind of only led us to have um not really a shortage of dogs necessarily but a shortage of suitable pets in my opinion um so I thought that interview was great and really fantastic coming from a shelter person because I think a lot of times um, people who are really elbow deep in the shelter world bristle at a lot of these um, ideas and concepts because, you know, they're the ones dealing with the excess um, dogs that nobody wants. And so it can be a really sensitive topic for for that group of individuals. Yeah, it's, it's tough. Um, I don't remember if you said this in my intro or not, but I did an internship my first year out of vet- veterinary school. I did a shelter medicine internship. Um, so I'm very passionate about sheltering. Um, and I actually, I haven't talked to any of my old colleagues from that year to see if they are aware of this particular initiative that I'm doing or how they feel about it. And I'm a little nervous about it, honestly. Um, but one thing that I found is that modern veterinary shelter medicine is really forward thinking in rethinking how we deal with animals coming through shelters and a lot of recognition that grabbing every animal, slapping it in a shelter and then euthanizing it because we don't have enough space for all the animals is maybe not the best way to, um, 
to take care of animals and, and have animals happy and have shelters be uh, affordable to run and that keeping animals in their homes um, and helping, you know, providing food if, if people need dog food, providing the dog food, providing medical care rather than just seizing the animal. Um, and I think that that's hopefully a similar way of rethinking the traditional sort of 1950s approach to sheltering that I, I hope that they're going to be open to seeing this other approach as well of the other way that we need to, to start addressing keeping animals in their homes is producing animals who don't have behavior problems. Um, that's just really important. It's huge. It's actually, you know, it's so huge. I had a conversation uh, with a family member who was, you know, pretty immersed in the kind of adopt don't shop culture and when i suggested to her her family had adopted and subsequently returned three dogs and i said i said hey maybe let's talk about getting you the right dog for your family and you know here's some breeds and here's even some breeders that i think you could talk to and you know she just kind of went oh no we oh you don't buy a dog you know that's it's become basically not pc to right. buy a dog right and she she was kind of horrified that i even suggested purchasing a dog you know never mind the fact that six of my seven dogs in my house are purchased from breeders um but i said you know she said i thought that the right thing to do was to get a dog from a rescue or shelter and i said the right thing to do is to get the right dog for your household that's the right thing to do. And that could be a dog from a shelter, but she had two, she had two little kids and um, a kind of mountain home with no fences. And it was a really specific kind of set of needs that she had for a dog. Um, But I, I think her experience is not unique because people are shamed about buying dogs. They're shamed about breeding dogs. Um, and so the kind of adopt on shop movement has created that culture. And I hope that with things like the Functional Dog Collaborative, maybe we can, I don't know, help, help it all kind of change because what we've got now is a lot of people who have no idea where to get a dog from. So then they do their best. And there's unfortunately a lot of gatekeeping in the purebred dog world, so they might not be able to get a dog from a quote unquote good breeder. <laughs> and then they get, um, you know, a puppy that they bought on one of these websites that basically is a broker for puppies. And <laughs> I mean, they're just, there are a lot of accessible ways to get a dog that maybe aren't the best way to get a dog. And then it's tough to get a dog other ways. And it's just, it's kind of a nightmare. And it's kind of a mess. And I'm really excited about the people that are coming together in the functional dog collaborative to maybe try to heal this mess and get people back to getting dogs that are right for them in their household rather than what's trendy or what's considered socially appropriate in their circle. And it's, it's been a really interesting question of where do pet dogs come from? Right. And so traditionally they have either come from a shelter or they have been cast offs from someone breeding for show. And yeah. In neither case are they intentionally being bred to be good pet dogs, right? Like even you, you can talk to someone who breeds a dog, who breeds a dog, breeds dogs for show, who says, you know, I do produce really good pet dogs, but that's not their first priority, right? For most of them, that's not why they're they're breeding dogs for themselves um, and for what they want, and they're not, which is fine, but they they shouldn't be the place that someone goes when they want a dog who can manage the two little kids and the, the unfenced mountain. right? Sure. And you know, anytime you're looking at a dog, I think it's fair to say, this is what I need from the dog. Yeah. And would, would the parents or the grandparents meet that need for me? And if these dogs, this is something I run into in my breed border collies frequently is that a lot of these dogs have never seen any of the circumstances that I might need them to operate in. And so I have no idea Um, if they, you know, if it's a rancher, I've gotten several border collies from ranchers. These dogs have pretty much experienced ranch life, which border collies tend to be really good at. And I have no way of knowing if this dog is going to be fine in suburbia, is going to be fine on an airplane, is going to be fine going to an agility national. Um, It's really hard 
important to know because these are things we can't test for. And so then being a good pet is the same thing. You need to know, were mom and dad good pets? And how about the grandparents? Were they good pets too? And then what does it mean to be a good pet? And if, you know, none of these dogs have lived with children, you have no idea <laughs> how how they might do with children because, you know, just just a clue to everybody, it's not actually at all in how you raise them, which is why we're talking to Jessica right now. <laughs> um, so I think it's all really important, I think, what uh, the collaborative is is doing and is there for. Yeah, thank you. I hope so. I, um, I hope I can change the world. It's a big ask. <laughs> Well, we're so, starting we're starting small right it's just what I can do in my spare right. time right now <laughs> so that's, that's that's absolutely right so on that note you mentioned kind of these three arms for the functional dog collaborative is that the future of this or is there an even bigger picture that you want to present or basically you know give us the future of the functional dog collaborative in yeah a few a few words <laughs> So, I mean, my ideal would be that it is a huge, well-accepted, vibrant community and that people talk about it the same way that they'd be like, you know, oh yeah, that's, you know, that, that it would be a household word in the same way that the AKC is a, is a household word that, you know, I under people have some v vague understanding of what the AKC is and does and that they would sort of have heard of the FDC as this, this place where also where people go to breed dogs and to talk about what the dog should look like and should be and should act like. Um, and that it would be, I keep coming back to saying that it would be big, but I mean, I think it needs to be big. I think it needs to start pulling in lots of, of different types of breeders, lots of people from lots of different places um, so that we can get lots of data and lots of resources together to just really, change how at least this country approaches breeding dogs. And I keep saying this country, obviously it's, I am happy to have this be international, but there's a lot less spay neuter in some other countries and um, their problems are different. So this has very much been um, sort of US centric as the way I've put it together. Um, but if it were worldwide, that would be fabulous. Um, but I just, I love the idea of it being something that people say, you know, every six or 12 months, we get to get together and, and have our big camp or conference or party or whatever it is and, and have that be something that a lot of people look forward to. Um, and that people who want to breed dogs in whatever ethical way they want to breed dogs have some support for doing it. So that's my hope. I, I love it. And I think you're right. I think it's got to be big. If it's going to make the necessary changes, it can't just be a little corner of Facebook yeah. with, you know, with like-minded individuals. Yeah. Um, so where can listeners go to find out more about this? So the website, uh, the much mentioned website is functionalbreeding.org. So you can go there. That will have a link to the... Facebook group, which is also called Functional Breeding. So you could go to Facebook and search for that, but the website will just have a direct link to it. And you should all come join the Facebook group and join our very polite and civil conversations. And there is a uh, contact form there on the website. So if you wanted to reach me, that would be the way to do it. Um, if you wanted to know more about me directly, you could go to dogzombie.com and that has more stuff just about me. Uh, where there's like a mailing list that you could get on and stuff like that. Uh, but for the Functional Dog Collaborative, you want to go to functionalbreeding.org. Excellent. And I will link all of this, including um, where they can find the podcast, which I'm sure is on yes. the website too, yes. um, in the show notes. And I really appreciate this, Jessica. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. And thank yeah. you so much for what you're doing with the Functional Dog Collaborative. No, oh, thank you for the signal boost. It's very helpful as I try to suck more people in. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> I, I appreciate the goal. So and any help that I can give, I will. All right, we've got a few Patreon questions for you guys. This one comes from Monica. I have a question about training reinforcement procedures how to do it and how important is it? Should a reinforcement procedure be trained completely before ever being used? And should it be the should it be executed the same every time? I'm thinking about a food versus toy. Um, 
She says her dog has good tugging skills, loves to tug, but not always. Um, and I don't always know ahead of time if it's the preferred reinforcer. So I'm going to stop right there before I keep reading. Number one, um, it's very important. You should do it now. <laughs> and I can't give you all the you know ways to train it right here in the Patreon questions, but there's information on my blog about it as well as several classes at Fancy Dog Sports Academy about it. Um, and you do need the procedure essentially trained before you put it to use, but honestly, I kind of introduce it to my dog and then I put it to work and through the training, uh, the dog gets more fluent with the procedure, depending on what the procedure is. So if the procedure is go to a food robot and collect food upon a beep, so like a manners minder, I want the dog really, really familiar with how to do that and also um, how to use their behavior to get that beep to happen before I put it to work on projects that I really care about. Um, similar with toys, I want them to understand their toy skills really well before I actually use toys with training. And if the dog is hot and cold on tug, then understand that it may not be operating as a reinforcer for you at all. Dog might enjoy it. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a reinforcer. So I would test my reinforcers before I start training, make sure my dog is into what I have today. Because if I click and throw a piece of cheese, for instance, and my dog says, I don't like cheese today, I'm a little bit screwed and I have to go back to the drawing board and either quit training um, or get better food, which is not a good behavior pattern, pattern to get into. I don't like to teach my dogs that if they refuse the reinforcer I have, I will give them something better. And so, as far as toys go, generally speaking, I don't use them unless the dog is really hot on them, really loves them, and also has really good skills with them. So that covers most of the rest of your questions here. Um, but then you kind of dive into more toy-specific questions. So Monica goes on to say, a toss toy during class as a reinforcer is good, but he doesn't always bring it right back to tug. Um, I've used a lotus ball on a rope or a food tug toy, but that doesn't increase his desire to bring it back to interact. So I'm gonna stop there again. That's about the way that you're playing tug. Um, and I've talked about that a lot throughout the podcast. Um, essentially, if they don't bring it back to you, that's a pretty clear indicator that the way that you're playing is not working for them. And the best person, in my opinion, to help you through that is Shade Weitzel. And she has a few different classes on Fenzy Dog Sports Academy that um, work specifically on toy skills. And then I personally do not use food toys if I intend to play with the dog with the toy. The reason I would use a food toy is if the dog doesn't want toys and I need something big and visible to throw for my reinforcement procedure. So I don't expect them to tug on uh, like the tug it, which you stuff with food or the lotus ball on a rope. So Monica goes on to say, so should I attempt to teach this or just keep tugging as an optional fun game and not include it in training sessions? That's what I think you should do. Have it be a fun thing that you guys do together that maybe you do in training breaks, but do your training with food. Food can do everything toys can do, um, and then some, to be honest. You're not a loser for training with food. So I'm glad that you asked that question, Monica. It was in-depth. I hope I got to every piece of your question. Um, make sure that you post again in Patreon if you've still got some more. Next one from Mary. I'm getting a new puppy and want to feed raw like I do with my other two, but I'm wondering if I should still feed partial kibble or other food that's easier to hand feed at first, or maybe just cut up boiled chicken or cheese. So with my puppies, I do feed them raw. Um, and I think what you're kind of asking is, but raw is not easy to train with. And I know that you got a Sheltie, which is not a very big um, dog. <laughs> so obviously you'll be limited to how many calories the puppy can eat. So I feed my puppies a lot of stuff, a big variety of things. I will absolutely use a high quality kibble as a training treat. Um, and I'll absolutely use meat as a training treat. I don't feed a ton of dairy like cheese because it tends to be a little harder on puppy tummies. And then I do a lot of uh, freeze-dried raw, which works better as training treats than actual um, fresh raw. 
And I'll also do the frozen raw nuggets. And if you can get them small enough, those can work for training treats as well. All right, this one comes from Crystal. Hi, I've just started giving my dog raw marabone due to the fact that she is little. She only gets it for like 30 minutes when she gets it. I found that she's a little growly if I just walk up to take it away. Now if I send her away from the bone, she will separate from it with no issue, no growl, nothing. I did a treat scatter for her and then I pick it up. Or this morning I gave her some raw steak while I picked it up. I know both of these work fine, but should I be concerned or should I work through a protocol to make it where I can just walk up and pick up the bone? She is not this way with other food or any of her other chew toys. It's just this one thing. So Crystal, I want to just say that if it isn't a problem, it isn't a problem. So if you can get her away from the bone happily on something else, make sure that she doesn't feel like you're tricking her. So kind of switch her onto something else that she can have, then I'd say that that's fine. And that's actually part of training uh, resource guarding, kind of anti-resource guarding is just asking the dog to switch on to something else. Training against resource guarding is not about the dog just surrendering and saying that you own the universe and you get to take all of their stuff all of the time. And I'm going to be honest with you, I wouldn't take a raw bone from any one of my dogs. And I'm not saying that they would bite me, but I am saying that that would be kind of a breach of contract, a breach of trust. So the fact that she can only have it for 30 minutes is actually the problem. That's the core problematic piece. But you mentioned later on, and I didn't read this part, that your dog is only seven pounds. So I understand that she's kind of limited in how much she can eat. But I wonder if she can chew the whole raw bone, if you get a little tiny one, um, until it's finished, and then not eat much else the rest of the day. Like, uh, that's more the route that I would go, rather than trying to get it from her. If you can get it from her easily, like you can say, hey, look, you know, switch to this Kong that just has a little bit of baby food in it or something and then you can take it away, then that's probably your best bet rather than trying to teach her to give it to you. If you had reason for her needing to give you this bone, then I would say yes, embark on a plan for that, but she doesn't guard anything else from you. She's just saying this is really high value and I know you're gonna take it. And the history is that you have taken it. So to kind of clarify, I, I rambled there a little bit. The first problem is that you're taking it at all. It would be best if you didn't. So try to figure out how you can get a small enough bone and cut her calories the rest of the day so that she can have the whole thing. If not, then you need to switch her onto something else that is equal or higher value. So unfortunately, equal or higher value is going to mean another rich high calorie treat. So that's again, kind of weaving back to that same problem, but you could smear just a tiny bit of like chicken baby food inside a Kong for her. Um, and see if she'll switch on to that. But generally speaking, when we take things from, things from them that they want and that they're enjoying, we do degrade trust and degrade our relationship and we can produce resource guarding problems where there aren't any. So if you can switch her onto something better and you don't observe any conflict about that, fine. If you can leave it with her and let her have the whole thing on occasion and just have it be a very rare treat, even better. All right, and that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron.